Uh, Chad will be preaching for us this morning. Chad is a pastoral resident uh, here at the Well uh, Community Church and uh, served for eight years uh, uh, as a lead of a missionary team in Australia and is now uh, taking classes at Reformed Theological Seminary and just doing an awesome job uh, serving and leading here at the Well already. Uh, how many months have you been here? Uh, since August last year, so it's coming up on a year. Ooh, almost a year. So just had a huge impact on the life of the church here. In my own personal life, too, as he's been supporting me in the work of ministry. It's just been awesome. So uh, let's clap it up for Chad as he preaches out of Exodus chapter 18. Good morning, everybody. So 2016 was a big year. Um, for a lot of reasons, election not included. Uh, but part of that, one, one of the things that happened that year is the Chicago Cubs made the World Series for the first time since 1945. Uh, okay. As a kid who grew up in Chicago, at least for part of my life, this was very exciting. Um, and as a Cubs fan, uh, it, it was an exciting time for, for all Cubs fans and for Chicago. Uh, yeah, they hadn't made it to the World Series since 1945. And they hadn't won a World Series since 1908. So at the time, they had the longest streak of kind of from when they last won a championship to, to now. Uh, but they made it to the World Series in 2016 against Cleveland, who ironically had the second longest uh, kind of winless streak during that time. So it was kind of a battle of, of historic losers, um, but, but fun team. Uh, the Cubs, they had a great season, really young, talented team. Uh, it was a contentious playoffs, but they made it to uh, the World Series and they went down three games to one. Uh, so at that point, they were down three games to one. Cleveland just needed one more game, and they would have won the whole thing. Uh, the Cubs battled back. They tied the series three to three. Um, so at this point, game seven, winner take all. If you like sports, that's like the best of the best. Uh, tensions are high, pressure is there, people are playing uh, their best. So it's three three. Uh, the game is actually really close. Uh, they finish nine innings and they tie. So they go to extra innings. So again, it's exactly what you want if you're a sports fan. Um, not great if you're a Cubs fan, though, because they did not look good as the game went on. Uh, it was looking like they were going to lose. Cause, uh, everything was kind of going in Cleveland's way. But then there was a rain delay as uh, right before the 10th inning started. 15 minutes, they had time to kind of recoup. Cubs come out. They scored two runs at the top of the 10th. Um, so now comes to the bottom of the 10th. Uh, all they need to do is get three outs and prevent Cleveland from scoring two runs. Cleveland ended up scoring one run, so they get to the point where it's, it's two outs. They're one out away from winning the World Series. Cleveland has a man on second. Um, so really, all they needed was like one good hit, and they could have tied the game, and it could have kept going. But the Cubs are just one out away from winning the World Series. So Cleveland comes up to bat, hits a ground ball to the third base side to Chris Bryant, who uh, was the superstar, former MVP of the Cubs. He fielded the ball. Threw it over to first base, Anthony Rizzo, another superstar on the team, who are no longer with them, um, caught the ball, and the game was over. They got the final out. Cubs won the World Series. 108 years uh, of no World Series of losing. Gone, all the curses of the Billy Goats and everything else that was going against the Cubs uh, was gone, and they won. They are world champions, and the curse was broken. Uh, Cubs fans everywhere were ecstatic. Um, you know, we were, we were very excited and overjoyed at the fact that our team won. If you're a fan of a team who's won a championship, you kind of know what that feels like. Uh, even though you're not on the team, you're kind of part of the team. 
Um, and you just have all this joy because your team won. And I was watching the coverage and eventually got to the point after they were doing all the interviews and stuff uh, where they were showing these highlights of um, each Cubs player, the moment they steal the game and they won. They kind of had a camera on each person on the field um, and it showed right as the third out kind of came what the reaction was. And for them, it was just elation. And so people were throwing their hats in the air, gloves in the air, were kind of jumping, uh, finding the person closest to them, hugging, and they all end up kind of congregating in the middle uh, in this big pile because years and years and years of sacrifice, of hard work, it got them to this point where they're able to win uh, the World Series and accomplish their goals. And watching those highlights, which, which I love, and with other sports, they do the same thing. I remember when the Ravens won the Super Bowl a few years ago. I just have this memory of Tori Smith kind of in the confetti doing like a, like a snow angel in that. Uh, I just love that because it's, it's people who are excited and accomplish what they wanted to accomplish. And it got me thinking as a fan, uh, yes, I had joy. Uh, I was happy. Um, I'm still riding off of that, even though the Cubs do not look good, and they should have won more since then. Um, but it got me thinking that those who are in the game, those who are playing, those who have some skin in the game, their joy is far greater than my joy. Uh, that moment for them uh, is going to resonate with them in a way that I will never know because I wasn't in the game. Uh, I didn't play baseball. I was never really good enough. Um, but for these guys, their joy far outweighed my joy. That's because they were in the game. And then uh, as we look at this passage, we're going to see today that the Christian life, um, part of the Christian life is engaging in the game. Life isn't quite a game, but it's engaging in doing what Jesus did. Uh, it is um, participating and not just sitting on the sidelines, because the, the Christian life's true joy, uh, one, comes from Jesus, but it also comes from participating in the mission that he's put before us, the Christian life that he's put before us. So we are uh, a couple weeks now into our Good, the Bad, and the Ugly series, uh, where we are looking at stories and people from the Old Testament and, and, and seeing how they, the good stories, the bad stories, some of them are quite ugly, last week was quite ugly, uh, how those ultimately point to Jesus. Uh, so today we're looking at a guy named Jethro, um, and as you looked at the passage, you saw a lot of Moses, uh, but that's because Jethro is uh, just instinctively tied up with Moses. We first meet Jethro in Exodus chapter 2. Uh, at this time, Moses uh, was, was living as part of kind of Pharaoh's family in Egypt, uh, but he himself was an Israelite. And at the time, Egypt had enslaved uh, kind of the Israelite people. But Moses, through circumstances that you can read about in Exodus, or if you watch The Prince of Egypt, you'll see that he was kind of spared from that. But he sees uh, an Egyptian slave master abusing uh, an Israelite, and he has this righteous anger and ends up killing the Egyptian slave master. He hides the body, thinks he's all right, uh, but it comes to light, so Moses has to flee to the desert to save his own life. Uh, when he flees, he comes to a land called Midian, uh, where he comes to a well. And at the well, there's these seven women who are tending to sheep. Um, and while they're there, some other shepherds come, start harassing these women. Moses, being the hero that he is, stands up for them uh, and, and kind of cast these shepherds off, and, and, and protects these women. These women are Jethro's daughters. So through all of that, Moses meets Jethro. Jethro is pleased uh, by Moses. He's very grateful for what he has done um, and invites Moses into his family. Uh, Moses ends up marrying one of Jethro's daughters. He uh, oversees Jethro's flock. 
Um, and, and it's just part of, of, of Jephthah's family. Uh, so as we, you know, as we read through Exodus 18, Exodus 18, over and over again, you see just Jephthah referred to as Moses' father-in-law. Uh, later on in the first half of Exodus 18, uh, we don't really hear from Jethro for a while. Uh, Moses goes to, to Egypt. Um, God uses him to free his people. We have the story of the plagues and the Red Sea and all of that. Uh, once they get to a point of safety, Jethro hears what happened and goes out to meet Moses. So the first half of this chapter is Moses just recounting what God has done and Jethro praising God because of the way that he saved his people. So the story, the relationship that we see from Jethro and Moses is a healthy one. Jethro was willing to entrust Moses with his daughter, uh, with his flocks. He supported Moses' mission. When Moses said, God has called me to go to Egypt to free my people, Jethro blessed him as he went. Uh, while Moses was doing that, Jethro took care of Moses' family. Um, so Jethro rejoices in Moses' successes, ultimately acknowledges Moses as God. So the glimpses that we have uh, paint a picture of the relationship of intimacy, trust, and camaraderie between the two, which is important because the passage that we're looking at today is Jethro giving advice to Moses. So it's, it's advice in the midst of trust and camaraderie and, and friendship. So that's where we get to Exodus 18. Uh, I'll kind of recount some of that. Uh, Moses is standing all day before the people, kind of judging them, in the sense of the people would come before Moses with disputes that they had, with conflicts that they had. Uh, and with a group of people, there's going to be plenty of disputes, there's going to be plenty of conflict, people are messy. And Moses was the one who dealt with all that, who received all of that. Jethro asked Moses, why are you doing what you're doing? And Moses says, uh, in verses 15 and 16, uh, that they have a dispute. They come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. So Exodus 18 occurs before the story of the Ten Commandments, before kind of the law of Israel was ratified. Uh, so it was up to Moses for the people to know what it meant to follow God, what God wanted, what his decrees were. So he was responsible for, for receiving all these disputes and then letting them know God's judgment on that. Jethro responds, you know, what you're doing is not good. Uh, you need to delegate. You're going to burn yourself out. Uh, appoint, empower, able men to do what you're doing uh, so that way it frees you up to handle some, some weightier cases. Yes, you and the people will certainly wear yourself out, for this thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Moses is just a man, uh, a faithful man, but just a man, and Jethro rightfully saw that Moses needed support. The three points that I want to point out from Moses, from this passage that, that Jethro points out as well, is that when, when Jethro says what you're doing is not good, he's saying not that the work that Moses is doing isn't good, but the way he's going about it. Because Moses was doing good work. He was doing important work. Um, Moses was making known the law of God to his people. And, and I know for a lot of us, as we kind of think about the law, we think about uh, things that we should do or shouldn't do. It kind of feels judgmental or, or authoritative. But God's law is more of a marker that people belong to him, uh, that, that those who follow God's law, those who keep God's law, those who follow his commands and his decrees stand apart from the rest of the world as God's people. So again, it's not just doing things or not doing things, but it's living in a way that reflects that these people are chosen by God, that they are loved by God, that they are in relationship with him. 
So Moses was responsible for helping the people know what does it mean to live out their identity as God's children. So it was good work, important work, and without what Moses is doing, uh, the people wouldn't be able to live fully if God was creating them to be. However, the second thing is that the work was too much for Moses to do alone. I mean, could you imagine the weight that Moses was carrying through this all? Uh, that if he was the one, kind of the, the mediator between God and his people, that everything kind of was flowing through him, and the people would bring their disputes and it would flow back through him up to God. Just the weight that that would carry on him, the, the burdens that that would bring, uh, the pressures and the worries and, and just fears that come with that. It was too much for Moses to do. He, God accomplished a lot through Moses up to this point, but Jethro rightly saw, eventually you're going to wear yourself out, you're going to hurt yourself, and you're going to hurt other people as well. So Jethro rightly sees that the solution is not for Moses to stop doing what he's doing, but it's to empower others to serve and to do what he does. So he commands Moses to appoint able men, men who fear God, men who uh, refuse a bribe, um, just, just good quality men who love God. And he says, appoint these men, empower these men, teach these men what God's decrees are, and then put them in place over groups of people, and they will hear these small disputes, they'll settle it, and then any big things can come to you, Moses. But could you also imagine being these men, too, that they have lived through and kind of seen what God has done through Moses. They were there in Egypt when the plagues came. They were there walking through the Red Sea when the waters were parted, and they're kind of walking through through this just miraculous thing that God was doing through Moses. They were there when the manna started coming from heaven and they had food to eat. They were there when the water came from the ground. They were there just a chapter before when uh, the Israelites uh, defeated the Amalekites and were able to kind of proceed forward. I mean, could you imagine them being like, who am I to do what Moses is doing? You know, Moses, he's the guy. He's the guy. He clearly is special. He has some sort of special connection to God that I don't have. How can I do what he is doing? I just imagine there'd be a lot of feelings of inadequacy, of um, anxiety, of, of imposter syndrome, all of these things. Um, and yet Moses still appoints these men over others that he still sees that these men are able and capable to do what Moses was doing. And from what we can tell in the passage, it seemed to go well. Moses appoints these men, he oversees these men, uh, these men handle these cases, and, and things seem to go well. Moses is freed of some of that burden. Um, and we see kind of this, this the authority and the power and the knowledge of God also distribute throughout the whole community. So Moses is serving as, as kind of a mediator between God and the people. And now for us, we see that we don't necessarily need Moses anymore. Uh, but because of what Jesus has done, Jesus is serving now as that mediator for us. So that just as Moses was doing good work, uh, we see that Jesus has completed the good work. That Jesus, through coming, through living, through dying, through resurrecting, uh, no longer do we need to kind of go to one person to know what God has commanded us to do. No longer do we rely on other people for us to have a relationship with God. But it's ultimately through Jesus that he came and he completed it once and for all. Um, and not only that, it wasn't too... While the work was too much for Moses to do, while the work uh, for him was... Too much for him to handle as he was uh, 
a valuable man, a, a man who, while faithful, while um, able, still uh, could not do all that was before him. Jesus completed this work that only he could do. It was not too much for him to do. It was destined and designed for him to do because only he could do that. Uh, as we go throughout the summer series and read more through the Old Testament, we're going to see over and over and over again how God's people knew what it meant to follow him, but couldn't. That the law was too big for them. The, the barrier was too big for them. The call to be holy and to be righteous, they could not do on their own. And that is why we need a Savior. That's why we needed a Savior. That's why we still need a Savior. And that's what Jesus came in. Because only he could do it. It was not too much for him to do. It was destined for him to do. But with that, Jesus, uh, even though he is enough, and, and fully enough, he still desires to empower others to serve and to do what he did. So Moses needed other men to do what he did to kind of free him up. Moses was, was kind of a necessity for him. But for Jesus, he doesn't need us, yet he still desires and chooses each one of us to do what he did to serve in the way that he did. John 17, 18 uh, it, it takes place, uh, it's towards the end of Jesus' life. He is gathered with his disciples in the upper room, and he's, he's praying over them. Uh, these couple of chapters are just really beautiful. There's a lot of great theology in that, and it also just shows Jesus' heart for his people, for his disciples, for us as well. In John 17, 18, Jesus is praying to God on behalf of his disciples, and he says, Just as you have sent me, so I send them. So Jesus knows what he's about to do. He knows that he's about to die and complete the work that is before him to unite people to God, uh, to, to make a way for that. And yet he knows this work is about to be complete, but I am still sending out my disciples to do what I have done. And then that continues on. Those disciples are making other disciples who go out and do the same thing. We see that in Matthew 28, where God tells, where Jesus tells his disciples to go and to make other disciples. Uh, Paul in 2 Timothy tells Timothy that what I've entrusted to you, entrust to faithful men, who then will entrust to other people as well, that Jesus desires to empower others to serve, and that continues on to you and me today. That's not just saved for his disciples, uh, but all of us today who call ourselves disciples of Jesus. Um, Jesus desires to use us as well. So that gets to, that gets to us. That Jesus desires to use us, that if he desires... Uh, for us to do what he has done, he has empowered us for good works. Uh, so we, you know, we often think about, or I often think about, I don't know about you guys, but I often think of, uh, you know, people like Moses when I read their stories in the Bible, that they're just superhuman in some ways, that they uh, have these special powers or, or things like that, that like, okay, obviously they're doing what they're doing, God's using them because they're distinct and because they're special. But as we read the Bible, we see now, oftentimes, these people are just faithful men who love God and who are following him and who are being empowered by him. So for us as well, you know, as Jesus desires to, for us to do what he has done, he then empowers us to serve as his ambassadors in the good work. So 2 Corinthians 5, 20-21 um, says, let me turn to it. This is Paul writing. He says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what we see here is that Jesus, who commends us, also sends us to do his good work. So verse 21, you know, Jesus became, who knew no sin became sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God, that he has commended us, that he has approved of us, he has made us righteous, he has made us a, a way to know God and to be in relationship with him, to be made right before God's presence. That is something that we could not do on our own, yet through Jesus he commends us, and now we can know him. But with that commendation comes ascending. That when he commends us, he also sends us out to go and to be his ambassadors. So verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. And ambassadors, um, I'm sure there's probably some people in this room who work with ambassadors, have encountered with ambassadors. Ambassadors are empowered with the ability to make decisions on the person who sent them. They're empowered with the ones to bring the information of the one who sent them to the place that, we are, that they are going. So we as believers are made ambassadors in Christ, meaning that we speak on behalf of him, that he empowers us to serve him, to love him, and to make, other, yeah, make others know who he is, speak on behalf of him. And that is not something that we can do on our own. It's only through the fact that he empowers us and commends us to do that. And sometimes the work is too much for us to do. Oftentimes the work is too much for us to do. But the good thing is that we are working with him in this. That we do the work in partnership with Jesus and with others as well. So as, as we look back at Exodus 18, we see that the able men, when they come across cases that are kind of too big for them, too hairy, too um, complicated, whatever it might be, uh, that they had the freedom to take those cases back to Moses and Moses would handle them. They knew that they had support. Um, they could go to Moses for advice and he would take care of it. So for us today, as we serve as Christ's ambassadors, we do it in partnership with him, knowing that we are not alone and that he empowers us to do it. That when we don't know what to do, when we get confused, uh, when we feel overwhelmed, we have the freedom to immediately go to him through prayer uh, and seek his support, seek his grace, his mercy, and in a lot of ways to entrust the situation over to him and trust that he is going to handle it. But we also do it in community with other people as well. These able men, we don't really know kind of what their interaction with each other was, but I would assume um, that they probably knew each other and maybe spent time kind of just sharing what the work was like, maybe complain a little bit about like, oh, this is really hard, or, uh, but also come to each other with encouragement and support and be like, hey, I've gone through that same thing, but maybe this needs suggestions, so let me pray with you in that. Uh, that we don't do this work alone, we're working with him, but we're also working as a body, as a church, in your community groups, to do what Jesus did with one another. The temptation, though, is to do what Jesus did on our own, through our own abilities, in our own strength. And ultimately, just like Moses, where Jethro says, you know, you will certainly wear you and your people out if you're doing it alone. It's too much for you to handle. The same thing's going to happen to us as we try to do what Jesus did through our own strength and through our own abilities. So church, where are you wearing yourself out? Where are you trying to do it alone? Where are you taking on the burdens that Jesus has called you to do and trying to do Jesus' work without him, without his empowerment, without his strength? Or where are you turning to him too late, where you're already kind of burnt out, where you're already tired, um, when you could have turned to him sooner? It, it, it's, it's a strong temptation to try to do 
the Christian life alone, to try to serve him in a way by yourself. It could feel overwhelming, uh, and, and at least the negative consequences. Uh, for me, I had a kind of a firsthand experience at this. Uh, like Matt said, I did campus ministry for eight years in Australia. Uh, and one of the years I was leading um, what we called a summer project, it was an end of the year mission trip. We would take our students to uh, beachside towns for something called schoolies. So schoolies are recently high school graduates who go to the beach, they party, they celebrate, um, kind of like senior week in Maryland, if that's still a thing, it was when I graduated here. Um, like that, except drinking age is 18, so it's it kind of a lot bigger because it was easier before that. So we would take our college students to go down there. During the day, we would run trainings and devotions and, and use it as an opportunity to grow people in their relationship with Jesus. And then in the evening, we would go to the beach where people are partying and have spiritual conversations with them. Hope to tell them about Jesus uh, and, and love on them. So I was uh, co-leading one of these trips. I had done it before, um, but as, as this trip went on, it was kind of the first time for me that I realized uh, I was in a situation where I was kind of the most experienced and oldest person in the room. I don't know if you guys have had that situation before where you like, something comes up and you're looking around and like, who's the adult here? Who's going to handle this? <laughs> and that, that was me. That was the first time where I'm like, okay, this is, this is me. I'm, I'm the one that people are looking at. Uh, so it was a good maturing experience. But with that came uh, just pressure that I put on myself to make sure we were doing what we needed to do and that it went well and that other people were doing uh, well. Which I think is a good thing. I think as if you're leading, you want to care for other people. You want to make sure that things run well. But I was just heaping this burden on myself and I wasn't really allowing other people to come in and to help in that sense. And that came to a head about one weekend. It was a two-week trip. Uh, we were gathering for uh, kind of prayer before going out to share our faith. We would gather as a group pray, some students would share devotion, just kind of get in the mindset for it. And I remember sitting around, and I just felt this sudden urge to cry, which I don't do. Uh, overall, I'm pretty steady and even keel. Um, but it was just this, this sense of, like, I just really have to cry. So I excused myself to the bathroom, thinking, like, okay, it'll pass. But I just started weeping by myself in the bathroom and had no idea. Like, there, there was... There's nothing I could point to where I'm like, I'm really upset at this, or somebody said this and it hurt me. I just started weeping, and I, I was so confused. Um, so I cried for a little bit, kind of pulled myself together. I'm like, okay, you get, this is not the time to do it. Let's, let's, let's get through it. Uh, I went out, joined back up with the group, kind of kept going for a couple minutes. And then the same feeling overcame me again. So again, I excused myself to the bathroom, started weeping, and I'm like, okay, something, something's not right. I, I can't go out tonight. So I didn't, so I told my co-leader that I'm, uh, I should probably stay in. So I did, and for the next couple hours, just this on and off weeping by myself. Just super weird for me, super vulnerable, um, and just also not what I wanted to do in that time of leading. It was a crazy night in general. Other, it's a whole other story. My wife was there, so she, she knows. Uh, so I can talk to you about that afterwards. But it was like the worst time to not be with the group that you're leading. But what I learned a few days later, I talked to on, on our staff, we had a, a licensed counselor who was great. And I was just kind of explaining what had happened. He was asking some questions, we were talking. And, and then at the end, he's like, I think you're stressed. I think you're overly stressed. And crying is kind of your body's reaction to let that out. Just like a baby, 
who can't really express when they're upset, they, they cry. He's like, it's, it's probably the same for you. So as I was reflecting, I, I realized that I was trying to do this alone. I was letting people in in some areas, but really I was heaping the pressure on myself. And there's a lot I could talk about in, in, in kind of life habits, and, and at the time not really, I wasn't really practicing things like Sabbath or silence, solitude. Um, but really I think the, the main thing for me was that I was trying to do it alone. I was trying to wear myself out uh, to do this good work in a way that was too much for me to handle. So it's really low time, but since then I have learned to, to know when I need Jesus and, and know what it looks like to go to him and to receive his encouragement and comfort and strength in that. So just as Jesus desires to use other people in the work that he's doing, to do what he did, uh, he then calls us to make disciples, to invite other people in to that same work. That Moses empowered these able men to do what he did. Jesus empowers us to do what he did. And then Jesus uses us to make disciples to do what he did as well. Uh, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Jesus, right before he ascends into heaven, is kind of one of his final commands to his people is to go and to make disciples of all people, uh, baptizing them, uh, teaching them what I've taught you, and that Jesus will be with them to the end of the age. That our calling as believers is to do what he did, and part of that is to raise up other co-labors in the mission field, other disciples of Jesus, pointing them to him, and ultimately back out into the world to proclaim his name. So church, as, as I was reflecting on this, and as I was looking through these passages, um, I was thinking about my time here at the well. It has almost been a year. Uh, and I do want to commend this church for the way, the, the numerous ways that you guys are doing what Jesus did. I think there's a great culture here at the well of, of, of not just sitting on the sidelines, but getting in the game and doing what Jesus did. I know uh, yesterday some people got together to, to make uh, meals for um, uh foster the family for a foster care organization to provide meals for families who are um, kind of within those first 24 hours of fostering kids. They just get a bunch of meals as well to, to help with just the, the sudden change in life. So we had people from the church get together to make these meals. Uh, we uh, have a, a lot of people who are serving week in and week out to make Sunday mornings happen. Uh, the people who are standing at the door welcoming you as you come in. We have the, you know, lots of people serving downstairs with the kids, teach them about Jesus. Uh, we have lots of community groups throughout the week. We had one multiply recently because it got so big that they empowered other people to lead a group and they were able to branch off and start a new one. And then there's the countless stories of you guys who are out there sharing your faith with your neighbors and your coworkers and your friends who are putting yourself out there to do what Jesus did in the space uh, that God has called you to do. So I do want to commend you guys for that. I think our church, uh, in a lot of ways, is a great example for that. But with that, I, I do want to kind of ask, for those of you who maybe aren't doing what Jesus has called you to do, uh, or maybe you're kind of like a sub player, you're kind of going in every once in a while, but you're not actively in the game, um, just to kind of ask yourself, what, what, is, what is preventing you from doing what Jesus did? Uh, I have two thoughts of why that might be, um, so give me grace in that. I think one is maybe... Um, maybe we are not experiencing the commendation or the pleasure of the one who is sending you. 
maybe our relationship with Jesus just isn't that great at the moment. Maybe it feels uh, dry, or maybe he feels distant. Maybe life has thrown some stuff at us, and it's really confusing, and it's really hard to want to come to Jesus, to, to feel his love. And with that, I would encourage you turn to Jesus in that, that he loves you and he receives you with grace, but also turn to one another and, and seek the support of one another in that. Encourage one another, support one another, walk through whatever life is thrown at you with one another, uh, and kind of bring back to Jesus. Uh, the second thing that I think maybe prevents us from doing what Jesus did is that we are fearful of what people might say when we bring the word into life situations. I know that's especially prominent in an area like this in Silver Spring and Montgomery County, uh, where being a Christian really gets you no benefits. Uh, if anything, people are kind of weary of you and, and um, have these preconceived notions of who you are and what you believe and, and, and what you care about. Uh, so fear, man, is, is very tempting to hold you back from really living out the way that God has called you to live. And in that sense, I would also say, boldly proclaim Jesus because he is with you and he empowers you in that. And because you are his ambassadors. So no matter what other people say about you, no matter what rejection we face, we know that we are still loved by God, that we still belong to him, that we are still his children, and we are his ambassadors. But also, when rejection comes, when fear comes, uh, it's not to minimize that, because that is very real. Rejection hurts. But in those situations, we could also go back to our Savior for love and for comfort, because he receives us with grace. So church, we have been given the responsibility, the pleasure, uh, the task to do what Jesus did, to make known who he is in the communities that we're in, to love people, to serve people, to care for the outcast, the oppressed. Um, we have been given this monumental task, but we do it boldly because we know what Jesus did for us, because we know how he has changed us individually, and we do it because we want others to experience that the same, knowing that Jesus is with us all along. So we boldly do what Jesus did as his ambassadors. So as we do what Jesus did, one of the things that he did that we do each week is communion. Uh, that we come before uh, God each, each week, reflecting on who Jesus is, what he did for us, and his sacrifice for us. Uh, so I'm going to read from Matthew 26. Uh, so Jesus is with his disciples at the Last Supper, right before he was about to be crucified. And he, it says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I'll tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So every week we come before uh, and take communion. One, in remembrance of what Jesus did on that cross where his body was broken and his blood was spilled on our behalf because he completed the good work. And we take it in, in, in thankfulness to him. We take it, take it in humility for the gift that he has offered us. And we take it to, to be united with him. So as we take the body, as we take the juice, uh, I just want to encourage you to take a moment 
reflect on what Jesus has done for you. Reflect on the ways that he has called you out to do what he has done. And come humbly before him in remembrance of him.